Hey everyone, hungry for more knowledge food? Well, join our Patreon at patreon.com slash curbsiders and become part of our staff at the prestigious Cashlack Memorial Hospital. That's right, we've been hard at work upgrading our website, expanding our video offerings, recording new seasons of Teach and Addiction Medicine miniseries, and growing our Digest newsletter. With the Curbsiders Patreon, you can become a house officer and get access to twice-monthly bonus audio and video episodes with me and Paul recapping episodes, sharing picks of the week, and answering listener questions. Or you can opt for full cash lack admitting privileges and get all episodes ad-free, including the entire back catalog, plus the bonus episodes. And you're going to get access to cash lack's Discord forum where you can connect, share ideas, and just basically ask us and our team anything. So join our community today at patreon.com slash curbsiders and become part of the Cashlack community. That's patreon.com slash curbsiders. Hey, Paul. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. <laughs> My son's uh, insulin delivery kit just came in the mail. Great. He's pumped. <laughs> hey, Matt, I could use yeah? either hand to put sugar in my tea. I'm ambidextrous. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, audience. Paul's saying puns now. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to The Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Matthew Frank Lotto, here with my great friend, Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Paul, how are you doing? I'm, I'm good, Matt. We just got back from a conference where we spent a whole lot of time together, so it's great to spend just a little bit longer with you. Sometimes I just can't get enough, and this is one of those times. <laughs> get used to it, Paul, because we're traveling again <laughs> two weeks in a row, two more weeks. Um, yet yeah, on today's episode, we're talking about insulin in type 2 diabetes with everyone's favorite returning guest, yeah. one of our one of our one of our favorites, not not Paul's because he's Paul's fake arch nemesis, but Dr. Jeff Colburn. He's a fantastic uh, medical educator, endocrinologist who talked to us all about how to how to use insulin, how to start insulin in type two diabetes, tried to get all the, you know, all our most common questions about this out there. And Paul, uh, before I tell them a little bit more about Dr. Colburn, can you tell me what is it that we do on the Curbsiders? Sure. As a reminder to our audience, we are the internal medicine podcast. We use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And as you mentioned, we are joined by the fantastic Jeff Colburn, the Curbsiders favorite, other than me, um, who taught us a lot. But I'll, I'll let you tell our, our listeners about who he is just in case they've forgotten. Our guest on the show today is Dr. Jeff Colburn, MD, FACP, FACE. He's a board-certified endocrinologist and clinician educator. He works at an academic medical center. Actually, as we were talking to him tonight, Paul, he is, like you, he's uh, moving from one job to another job. So very congratulations to the, the place where he's moving because he is fantastic. Uh, he's been on the show many times. Uh, we've talked about like DKA, type one versus type two. We've done some updates on diabetes with him. Paul, he's one of our go-to our go-to educators, uh, certainly for anything endocrinology. Um, he's been a key faculty member at the uh, internal medicine programs where he's worked. He's been an internal medicine clerkship director. He says he enjoys listening to the show. Paul, I don't know if that's true I or don't not, but uh, uh, without further ado, let's let's get to our friend, 
and Paul's nemesis, Dr. <laughs> Jeff Colburn. And one last reminder that this and most episodes are available for CME credit through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Jeff, my great friend, Paul's nemesis, welcome back to the show. <laughs> Thanks so much. And, uh, you know, Paul, if you want to keep up this charade, I mean, it's you should just embrace Jeff as for the wonderful guy and educator he is, and maybe one day he'll take your job. What's the big deal? I mean, off air, I've been begging him to replace me. Like, please, just <laughs> <laughs> unshackle me from this burden, from this rock that I drag behind me. I beg of you. <laughs> well, I, I heard that you're moving your job, and I'm moving my job, so I'm inching closer to physical location, <laughs> and you're maybe inching a little further away. So we are we are making the move. I am I am moving in on your territory, man. Uh, it's, it's As long as I can pick up just some of your expertise, I will consider it an even trade. I'll try so, Jeff, you were just telling me, you know, to to prompt you for kind of like a hobby or interest. You were just telling me that you're that you're playing some sports. Uh, tell us about your athletic activities that you're doing with your family, because uh, you were. It sounded like a good thing to uh, a good thing to recommend to the audience. Do some sports yeah. with your family. So we uh, definitely have a, a gym that we go to, which is great because a lot of the gyms have a way that they'll take care of your kids while you work out. So I definitely take advantage of that. Um, and the kids love it because they're socializing with other kids and being active. But we do pickleball here. Uh, we do some rock climbing here. And then we also swim quite a bit. So uh, it's been a lot of fun, the gym that we go to. Um, and uh, yeah, it's it's great to be active and spend our free time together doing it. I The rock climbing thing, uh, you know, I'm afraid of heights, or at least I used to be. I, I try to avoid them. So I don't know how much how afraid of heights <laughs> I am anymore. But uh, how's the rock climbing with that? Uh, probably a, a negating factor for getting, uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, my wife and I met in medical school, um, through doing lots of rock climbing basically on the weekends. I'd like to say we studied, uh, at every minute of the day, but, um, no, we did a lot of rock climbing up in the, the gunks of the Shawgunk mountains in New York. And, uh, that's actually how we really met and bonded. And, um, we still rock climb today, not as adventurous as we used to, uh, out of self-preservation and having kids, but, uh, it's a safe sport and, but you do have to know what you're doing. So, yeah. Yeah. Paul, will you, you be find getting like a, into about a short wall where you can do a lot of lateral work? That might be good for you, Matt. <laughs> yeah. There you they go. call that bouldering. Yeah. So there is that too, but, um, yeah, they have the short bouldering walls that you can do. Yeah. All right. Well, we have a big script, and it took us a little while to get started tonight, so we should probably go to a case from Cashlack. Obviously, I'm going to ask the great Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams to start us off with a case and, and you know, ask the first question here. Chuck is a 42-year-old gentleman who's living with type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, hyperlipidemia, with hypertriglyceridemia, obesity with a BMI of about 46, and obstructive sleep apnea. He's been lost to follow-up for about a year when he lost his job in insurance. Uh, he returns today. He wants the full checkup. Uh, since his gap in care, he has continued to take his metformin ER, 500 milligrams, two tabs twice daily. He takes glomeparide, four milligrams daily, almostartan, 40 milligrams, but he's also run out of his amlodipine, 10 milligrams. On examination, his vitals are 135 over 92. His weight is 270 pounds. Um, BMI remains 46. And, oh, we have access to a point of care hemoglobin A1C at Cashlack. So apparently, administration blinked, and then we got a fancy pants machine. Um, <laughs> but anyways, his point of care A1C is 13.5%, so we start to sweat a little bit. So we have this, this young patient with uncontrolled diabetes with severe hyperglycemia. Um, and really, we, we talked in a previous episode, really, that there's no wrong time for patients like this to start a GLP-1, but unfortunately, 
um, this medication is probably too costly for Chuck. We, we look through his plan. It doesn't seem like he's got a lot of good options initially. So we decide after shared decision-making to, to try insulin therapy for this patient, just given how high his A1C is. Um, I think before we get there, I, I would just love to hear your, your general thoughts about sort of how we should think about this case and how you might start thinking about initiating insulin in a patient like this. Yeah. So the first question that you really think of when you're addressing any patient with diabetes is what type do you think they have? And um, there are clues. So the age of the patient is a clue. You know, type 1 diabetes, beta cell failure, we used to call juvenile diabetes because it does tend to happen more in young people, although can happen at any age. You can have autoimmune destruction of the beta cells at any time. Um, and then type 2 diabetes, which is more so the insulin resistance, um, uh, however, type 2 diabetes, when diagnosed, um, about half of the beta cells have lost their function. Um, and so usually with type 2, uh, you can treat with other medication options before you have to replace insulin. So you have that opportunity. But there, um, the successive loss of beta cells eventually with type 2 diabetes typically leads to the requirement to use insulin therapy. Um, this patient who is 42... So average age of type 2 diabetes is about 50. Um, so he's a little bit young. Um, however, has obesity, has hypertriglyceridemia, has hypertension. Uh, uh, um, so I'm thinking type 2 diabetes. And um, the A1C target for this patient, you know, you would probably try to get less than 7 if you can, but 7 to 8 would be a nationally recognized uh, reasonable target to prevent microvascular disease. So he's, he's pretty far from that at 13 and a half. So like you mentioned, some of the strong options that we have available, um, like a GLP-1 or an SLT2 inhibitor might be a bit expensive. Um, insulin can be too. However, most guidelines would suggest he starts insulin because of how high that A1C is. Uh, usually when it's above 10, you want to start thinking about insulin as a powerful agent to uh, start treating this process. Um, so that's uh, where I would begin. And I know we've talked with you about this on other shows that there are some patients, if the, if this guy wasn't on anything and his A1C is 13 and, you know, he has lots of room in lifestyle and he's not on any orals yet, we might be able to get him down with very temporary insulin or without any insulin at all. Uh, in this case, we're giving you that he's been faithfully taking metformin and glimepiride, and despite that, this this A one C is double digits. So that's that's a big issue. Um, yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Definitely. So and I thought this was interesting in some of the guidelines, and I think this was the ADA standards of care. They mentioned that you should really be you shouldn't use insulin as like a threat to a patient. Like if you don't do this, we're going to need to start insulin. Can you talk a little bit about that aspect of things, like how you talk to patients about insulin? Because I feel like there's certain stigma attached to it or certain beliefs around it that make it hard to initiate. Yeah. So a lot of people have a uh, family member that they can remember or tell you a story about that they recall having started insulin. And then shortly after they start insulin, they have a complication of diabetes uh, like an amputation or dialysis or something really scary. And the the relationship between the timing of the insulin and those bad events is is probably uh, because 
the person's diabetes had progressed to the point that they need insulin therapy, uh, and then also progressed to the point that the damages to their blood vessels and organs had accrued enough to cause a big event. Uh, however, in the mind of the patient, they see the insulin as the, the thing that got started and then bad things came about. So that's a bit of the tangle that I've frequently seen in the story of people. And you have to try to tease that out sometimes uh, by asking about family members and experience with insulin um, and, and hypoglycemia, which we can talk about more. Um, the second thing I'd like to say in that realm is that I had a great mentor um, who told me that starting insulin is not because the patient failed to do what they're supposed to. It's because their beta cells ha are failing to do what they're supposed to. As type 2 diabetes progresses, those beta cells, which are being attacked by fat that's invested in the pancreas, are losing function. And as they lose function, you can't, you can't support them with all the other non-insulin medicines. And at some point, you'll reach a threshold where insulin will be the only thing that you can use to help that patient. And I feel like that can help a person realize that their, their beta cell function or pancreas has failed them and that this is a needed therapy. And sometimes that you can work into your conversation. It's not a failure of the person. This episode is sponsored by Birch Mattresses. You know, I've talked about this openly, how I've struggled with sleep. And part of that, that's, uh, you know, that's a, my own mental thing. And I'm, I've worked on that. I've gotten better at that. But another part of that is my old mattress was just saggy, uncomfortable. It was too firm. And now I got my Birch mattress and I love this thing. What I love about it is very breathable. It's much cooler at night when I'm sleeping, which is important for sleep. If you read about sleep, you want to be cool when you're sleeping. So I love this mattress. It's stylish. It's comfortable. It's even environmentally conscious. It's made right Right here in America, crafted with natural and organic materials like fair trade cotton, organic wool, and natural latex. And Birch, you know what? They ship this thing right to your door in a box. You cut it open, it opens up super easy. It's a hundred night free sleep trial. So I know you're going to love it, but if you don't, you can send it back. And guess what? Your Birch mattress has a 25 year warranty. And as I've joked, who knows if I'll even be alive in 25 years? This thing's going to outlast me for sure. Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free eco-rest pillows at birchliving.com slash curb. That's 20% off and two free eco-rest pillows at birchliving.com slash curb. Sleep better with Birch. Paul, I don't know about you, but is it, it for me, it's not always obvious when the person reaches that point with type 2 diabetes that, you know, that we need, that insulin is the, the main option. I'm not sure if you have a better way of teasing that out. If, if I do, no. <laughs> Obviously, we're going to ask Jeff, but I just, I'm just wondering if you also find this difficult, like to the point where I'm like, have I tried everything or is like, ins or are we really at that point now where I have to start this person on insulin? I, I think you have to at least assess adherence. So like you do hit that sort of wall where you're like, okay, I've, I've done all I know how to do pre-insulin and we're, we're still not moving the needle at all, is it, so to speak, but is it worth readdressing insulin, readdressing diet adherence? Like, I, I think it's it, my, my threshold is the point where I've sort of tried the other things and just haven't really got more, or, you know, if they're clearly catabolic or the number's sky high, then sure. But otherwise it's, it's just sort of once I've used all the mortality, um, affecting medications that I know how to use, then I, then I start having the conversation and I, I Jeff, I don't know if you have a, a different approach or not. No, Paul, you're exactly right. So you mentioned catabolism. So if the patient is 
unable to access their sugar uh, supply for fuel as a fuel source. Uh, they will have glycosuria, so urine glucose that's super high. They can develop ketosis. Um, so like a type 1 can develop DKA. So uh, type 2s can kind of move along that spectrum as well. So if you're seeing evidence of that, like you'd mentioned, catabolism, uh, yeah, insulin's the only thing that will uh, bring that back to, to restore the patient uh, and to fix the sugar. Um, I agree with you also. You both had mentioned that you've tried everything else. And so usually the everything else in the guidelines right now is supporting using metformin as a first line for type 2 diabetes still in the guidelines. And then your next medications, as long as you have insurance coverage, uh, would be a GLP-1 agonist uh, and or an SGLT2 inhibitor. Those are in the guidelines because of the mortality benefit, organ benefit, and weight loss potential. So you're trying to seek those. Um, they help the patient more than the sugar improvements. They do other things metabolically to help the patient. So if you're doing all of that, yeah, then insulin becomes the next treatment. Or if you can't afford one of those agents, um, then insulin can be more affordable for, for patients. Um, and, and so those are the signs. Usually also, I'd already mentioned that the A1C above 10 is often an indicator that you might need insulin. Uh, again, you all mentioned if you don't have any treatments on and the A1C is above 10, you might get that to a better level with just starting the metformin, GLP-1 agonist, or SGLT2 inhibitor. So with our guy here, uh, we're pretty sure he's been adherent. He's been doing his best with what he's eating, but still A1C's uh, 13% uh, or above 13.5% we gave you. So t talk to us a little bit about which insulin you might go to as a first line, because I, I know it's confusing now. There's there's like intermediate insulin, there's basal insulin, there's multiple types of basal insulin. And, uh, and I think some people, hopefully, hopefully people aren't still doing this with type two, but some people think everyone needs basal bolus insulin, which, so how do you, how do you approach this? Yeah. So for type two diabetes, um, you want to start basal insulin first. Um, our body produces insulin really kind of in a basal fashion during our fasting period overnight, um, to match the liver's sugar output. Um, we also during the day make kind of a basal rate, um, our body makes about, um, for people that are not insulin resistant, approximately a unit per hour. Um, and then when we eat, of course, we make more insulin to cover food intakes. Um, so for, for individuals, uh, when we're going to start them on basal insulin, if you look at the American Diabetes Association guidelines, um, they'll usually start a basal insulin at 0.1 or 0.2 units per kilogram per day. Uh, or they also mention you could just start 10 units a day. And then you need to titrate the insulin. So you need to go up. Uh, usually every two to three days, we're checking the fasting sugar, You want, which is your first of the morning. You know, I just woke up, check that sugar. Uh, that's the number that we're looking for treating. The target for most people like this patient would be 90 to 130 milligrams per deciliter. And so you'll start that initial dose. And then you'll every two to three days increase the dose by about two units until you seek the, the target. Uh, the fasting target. And so, yeah, basal insulin to start, seek the fasting sugar treated, uh, and it will help with the other sugars through the day. It's kind of like a, a, a suppressive effect throughout the day as well. Yeah. The basal insulin, I like this formula, 0 0.1 to 0 0.2 
uh, units per kilogram per day. So Paul, for our standard 100 kilogram person, which I feel like when we were in med school, it was a 75 kilogram person. (laughs) (laughs) Now it's a standard 100 kilogram. That's 10. The math is easier, Paul. That's what I'm happy about. Uh, it's, so it's 10 to 20 units, you know, and then, or just 10 units for most people should be okay. And I should specify, so that's using a once a day insulin. Mm -hmm. Um, a common one people use is glargine, um, which there are some biosimilars of, which might be cheaper on the formulary. Um, but that's a common insulin that's used, which is a once a day. Um, there is another basal that's a twice a day. It's a 12-hour. Um, and so I'm kind of alluding to the duration of action for insulin, which is important to know about each insulin, insulin like what the onset is and what their duration of action is. Um, and so I, I would say most in the audience should Google or look up a graphic of uh, the pharmacokinetic profile for insulins and just be familiar with, that, with what that looks like. And so for glargine, the onset is about two hours, and then the duration of action is 24 hours, which is why it's once a day. Um, there are basal insulins, which are twice a day. The common one there is um, uh, Detamir, uh, Levamir Detamir, uh, which a lot have on formulary. And uh, that one is dosed twice a day, um, just based on the fact that it works for 12 hours. I mean, so those are common ones people use. Another basal, which is less commonly used um, because it's a bit older and it has a bit of a peak to it, it's not a flat action, is uh, NPH insulin. Uh, NPH has a peak effect at about six hours and it lasts for 12 hours. Because it has a peak effect, it can cause some hypoglycemia more than other basal insulin products. Yeah, and that one's probably the one that... Um, sometimes you're forced to use it in some of, uh, depending on where you're practicing, sometimes the mix insulins, uh, will, like sometimes that will be cheaper or sometimes the 70-30 insulin, which may be a mix of NPH and regular insulin, uh, is, is the choice you have. So you're sort of stuck in, so how do you dose that when you're timing it or how do you time those twice a day injections of NPH, whether it's in the mix or just given by itself? Yeah, NPH is a bit of a hidden tool because most people are a little bit unfamiliar with it. It's not as commonly used. However, it is much more inexpensive than other basal insulins. And so it is something I think people should know about. Um, Because of its peak effect, uh, more of the basal insulin dose should be delivered in the morning time uh, because as it peaks, uh, the person can ingest food and have some of the insulin and carb being matched from that during the daytime. And so usually two-thirds of the basal dose for NPH is given in the morning, and one-third of the basal dose is given uh, before a dinner meal. And so it's a twice-a-day delivery with, again, two-thirds of the dose in the morning and a third in the evening. So, for example, if we're doing 0.2 units per kilogram, um, that would be like something like 15 units in the morning and five units uh, in the evening. Um, and uh, that, that would uh, cover us pretty decently. Um, and uh, I, I think the other thing to know with that, like you'd mentioned, a pre-mixed insulin, there are insulins that are, uh, like you'd mentioned, a 70-30 mix. So the 70 in that is NPH. Uh, 70% of that pre-mixed insulin is a basal, and 30% is regular insulin, so fast-acting to cover a meal. Um, it is an option you can use for people that need mealtime insulin but are not good at checking sugar often or giving frequent injections. Um, again, it's delivered twice a day. So the 70-30 insulin is given in the morning. Uh, two-thirds of the dose is delivered there. And then uh, an evening dose, one-third of the dose is delivered there. 
a key with this therapy is that even though it's a twice a day insulin therapy, the patient has to eat lunch. They must because the peak effect of the NPH is at six hours. So if you do it in the morning, you're going to have a peak at lunchtime. And if they're not eating, they are going to get low. Yeah. And it seems like the nocturnal would be an issue too. I, I know they're getting us like a third of the dose at, at dinner time. Uh, but if they eat dinner at six o'clock is peaking around 12, do you tell them to eat some sort of like evening snack too? We don't because the dinner oftentimes being a bigger meal of the day and con- including things more like fats and things that are slower to digest and absorb, often that is fine. You're going to absorb and digest those foods and it matches okay. So usually I don't have to require them to eat a later snack, but you, you, I, I agree. It is a more risk to have some lows overnight. And so you want to be wary of that mm-hmm. and maybe have the patient testing kind of randomly on some nights to see how they're doing. Jeff, I want to ask about the Levimir, which I feel like I see all the time dosed once daily, or at least that's how patients are being told to Same. dose. And I think a lot of Same. times that happens where, you know, pharmacy changes that kind of thing. So like you're someone's on Glargine, you get the call like, oh, they can't take Glargine anymore, but they can take Levimir. So you just make a one-to-one conversion. So I'm hearing that that is wrong. So is it, would you just sort of split that dose into that, the twice daily a, instead? That is a twice a day insulin. Um, if you do it, once a day, they're definitely going to run out of insulin effect at the tail of that. It's only a 12-hour insulin. I guess the idea that someone's trying to use is that most of the difficult sugars are when they're eating food during the day, and maybe that's how they're dosing it. But it's meant to be twice a day and the same dose for both of those administrations to cover the basal effect uh, that you want with that insulin. But no, that's that's a twice-a-day insulin. So if someone was on Glargine 10, the conversion would be five of Levimir twice daily. Is that the correct are, way to do that then? You are okay. correct. Yep, that's yeah. right. And then Jeff, the other, just to back to the NPH, because I'll, I'll, I'll say I've definitely been guilty of this and this is what I commonly see. I didn't realize that NPH by itself would be, I, I haven't seen it used by itself really. So it seems like if, if our first move for a guy like Chuck is to go to a basal insulin, if he couldn't get Glargine or Detamir, Levimir or whatever, then uh, maybe we're going to put him at an NPH two-thirds at breakfast, one-third at dinner. He doesn't necessarily need to be on a 70-30 premix. He can just, he doesn't need that, the mealtime part of the premix. So he could just be on plain NPH, which I commonly see people either they're on Glargine or they just get put on 70-30 and maybe that's just... um, lack of teaching, but that, Paul, I think I've, that goes back to our training. Like this is multiple places and, and, you know, it's not just like one person I've seen do that. <laughs> it's us. We're perpetuating that information. <laughs> yeah. You can, I would start with basil and, um, because mealtime insulin comes with, um, a little bit more risk for lows and you have to have that paired a little bit with the food. You don't necessarily have to do carb counting for type twos. Uh, although advanced type twos, people that really lost their basal function or type ones, do need to match their mealtime insulin with the carbs they eat to have a closer pairing of that. And that's complicated to do, a bit to walk through for most people, and needs diabetes education and support and training to do right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but basal to start for uh, most patients, it's the way to, to begin for type 2. This is great. I've already learned something that's going to be uh, definitely practice changing. And we talked... Uh, we talked a little bit about this. I, I think this would be a good time to just put in that uh, that the NPH insulin uh, and if someone NPH insulin or if someone needed regular insulin, you said is available. There's a $25. One of the big box retailers has it. People can Google search $25 insulin and and that's something they could potentially get there if for whatever reason they, they couldn't get uh, 
NPH, you know, with an insurance. You're definitely right. We've heard uh, Congress is trying to work with uh, pharmacy industry to make insulin more affordable for people in the United States. And it, you're right. As of current, if you Google search, uh, there is a big box retailer with a $25 regular and $25 NPH available. Yeah. Uh, the other fancy insulin hasn't made it there yet. But um, that's why I say it's in- important, I think, to know those insulins for people that uh, don't have good insurance. Yeah. And, and I think Medicare... It's not all types of insulin, but some insulin is capped at $35 now, right? There, that was a new thing. And I think it's, it's, it, it's not all types, not all the fancy new insulins, but some of them are. So it, I, I think we're getting there a little bit, but it's, it's, been, it's been very expensive for a lot of patients to, to get agree. insulin. Yeah. Uh, the, the insulin Degladec, is that, uh, I don't think that's a brand name. I think that's the generic uh, Degladec. Is that, which I believe comes in a couple different um, concentrations, but I think that is a little bit longer acting than the Glargine or the the Detamir. Can you speak to that a little bit? It is. So all insulin um, has to uh, fit in the insulin receptor. And so the duration of action of insulins is either due to additives or changes to the insulin molecule. And in Degladec's instance, they've pegylated it so it floats around a lot longer. It it has a 72-hour duration of function. And so you still have to administrate it daily. It's still injected daily, but it has a very um, protracted duration of function. So it allows you to inject instead of right on the button exactly the same time every day. If you miss that window by a little bit, it's a little more forgiving. Also, because it has such a long duration of action, it is a very, very flat profile insulin, so there's no peaking at all. Um, How much does that clinically translate to improvements for the patient on the ground? I I will say that the on the ground evidence is not, not as exciting. I think it's an interesting product. Um, people that uh, very, very sensitive patients, like a type 1 who's very sensitive to any peaking of insulin, potentially benefits from this if that's being demonstrated, like if they're on glargine and having some lows from that, uh, the degladec might come in. But otherwise, um, there's not a strong case in type 2 diabetes, uh, other than those nuances I mentioned, which are selling points, but i I don't know that that's an overriding factor to say you have to select that. Um, it's an option that's available, maybe more for type 1s, better for type 1s. This episode is sponsored by Pattern. At Pattern, they give you a quick, simple way to compare and buy disability insurance. Busy doctors shouldn't have to worry about whether or not they are getting the best rates and discounts. Trying to research all your options and make the right decision while in training can make the process even more overwhelming. And that's why thousands of doctors trust Pattern to help them compare and understand the disability insurance that they're buying. And Pattern does this in three simple steps. First, you request a quote online at patternlife.com slash curbsiders. Second, you compare your options and ask questions. And third, you secure that policy. I think this is important. I have disability insurance as a physician, and I think you should too. So check disability insurance off your list today. Be confident that you have the right policy so that your income is protected with huge discounts for doctors and training. Now is truly the best time to request your disability insurance quotes with Pattern at PatternLife.com slash curbsiders. That's PatternLife.com slash curbsiders. All right. So we've talked about 
a couple different types of of the basal insulin now. Um, and I, I want to get back to back to our case. We're going to come back to insulin again, of course, but starting him, let, let's say that we're going to be starting him on Glargine once a day. What would you tell him about the metformin and the glimepiride that he was already taking? Yeah, metformin should definitely be continued. Um, it, that's a standard uh, guideline-based therapy. Um, the sulfonylurea, the glimepiride, um, that is covering, it should be used at mealtimes. So that uh, sulfonylureas cause an instant release of insulin from the beta cells. Um, and so you'll get a surge of insulin that, that peaks from the patient's own biology. Um, if the person is progressing in failure of the beta cells, that medicine might not work very well, and it can actually cause some lows. Uh, he may have to reduce the dose of that, so you might cut that in half when you begin the basal, um, start the basal insulin, see how his sugars respond, and um, see if you might need to actually go back up on, if the mealtime sugars are remaining high, you might need to go back up on the sulfonylurea or replace it with mealtime insulin. Um, sulfonylureas are um, less exciting in the current uh, age of diabetes care because they don't have other than sugar improvement benefit for patients. So like, for example, SGLT2 inhibitors and GLP-1 agonists fix mealtime sugars, but also have organ benefit. Sulfonylureas don't. They just fix sugars. And uh, there's a higher risk of hypoglycemia from them. Um, and so I'm not excited about them. They are cheaper. They do work at mealtimes. Uh, I might reduce, I might half the dose as I begin the basal for him mm -hmm. and then see if he needs it at the mealtimes further or replace it with uh, mealtime insulin. This, yeah. Jeff, kind of begs the question, because uh, we have a patient who ostensibly may not have even been checking his blood sugars at home. He was on two oral agents and sure one has a potential for hypoglycemia, but may not have even had a glucometer say. So I, I, I would wonder if you wouldn't mind just at least talking briefly. I feel like oftentimes the discussion about initiating insulin is accompanied by the discussion of insulating, checking blood sugars at home. So how do you recommend someone who's just insulin naive to sort of start checking how often that kind of thing? Yeah, truly, if you're on metformin, SGLT2 inhibitor, or GLP-1 agonist, you don't need to be doing any daily sugar checking. Uh, often we have people checking just to kind of see what the, sh the effect of different foods has on their uh, sugars. So they can do what we call uh, just, just ob observational sugar checking uh, and anytime they're feeling low. Once you start talking about insulin or sulfonylureas, then we need to start really checking uh, our blood sugar because we're using that number to now do treatment response. So that's where it really becomes important. Um, the most important sugar of the day to check is that first when I wake up, that fasting sugar before I've had any breakfast or anything, what is my blood sugar? That's the number that we're titrating or changing the basal insulin against. We're trying to seek 80 to 130 for most patients, and that's that number that's most important. If the person's on the sulfonylurea, the glimepiride, uh, you are going to need to have them checking before and after meal uh, sugars. Uh, I think this person was on it twice a day, if, you're, if that's correct. You're mm -hmm. going to need to be doing before and after the meal and before and after the meal when they're taking that um, if they are stable with that medication and reliable, you know, not having lows and it seems to have a reliable effect, you might be able to tell the person, okay, you don't need to do before and after. Every time with the glimpiride, it seems to be, you know, affecting it reliably, consistently the same. Um, but if we go to mealtime insulin, uh, usually we're going to have to be doing uh, at least a before mealtime uh, sugar check. So we know, you know, if I'm coming into that meal with a blood sugar of, you know, 70, 
uh, I'm going to need to bring down that mealtime insulin dose so we don't, you know, get too aggressive and have a low occur. Uh, or to the contrary, if we're coming into that meal very high, we might need to add correctional insulin. So really, we talk about insulin being in three flavors. We talk about basal, which we've been talking about most right now, which is that long throughout the day insulin uh, that the person will begin with. There's the mealtime, or I should say pre-meal insulin. And then this third one, which I'm now talking about, which is correctional insulin, which is if the person checks a sugar and sees a high number, we can give them a correction scale to be adding more units of insulin um, to their to their pre-meal insulin. So what what do you usually tell people if they're if they happen to be checking uh, usually when I'm starting someone on therapy for diabetes and we're just trying to, f- and they're uncontrolled and we're trying to figure out where their highs are. Cause sometimes they'll be like, oh yeah, my, my mornings are fine. You know, they're, they're one thirty or, or less, but their A1C is 10%. So, you know, there's some high sugars in there. What do you tell them the number should be before? And then like an hour or two after their meal? Yeah. So before the meal, ideally we should be, um, you know, seeking the less than 150 range and after the meal, it should be less than 200. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those are the general ranges that we're going to be seeking for the patient. You know, if you think of an A1C target of seven to eight, which for most people with type two is reasonable, um, that's going to be an average sugar of 150 to 180. Mm -hmm. Um, That's, that's a seven to eight. Um, less than seven would be a blood sugar generally less than 150. So you can think about that when you think about your um, fasting sugar. Again, we'd already mentioned 90 to 130. Your pre-meal less than 150 and your post-meal less than 200 generally. Mm-hmm. Those are your targets. Uh, I think most people would try to say maybe less than 180 post-meal. But again, there's a little bit of wiggle room there uh, because the insulin and the meal need to match. Uh, but that's, that's usually where I'm targeting. So what we've talked about so far, uh, basal insulin is where we started our guy on basal insulin. Let's just say we started him on, uh, he's 122 kilograms. Let's just say we started him on 15 units. We just sort of, you know, somewhere between 0.1 and 0.2 units uh, per kilogram per day. So we start him on 15 units. How would you tell him to titrate that up uh, now that he's on it? And he's, he's continuing his metformin. He's continuing the glimepiride, but we're really going to keep a close eye on his pre-meal and post-meal, make sure that we're not causing any lows. And, you know, does he need that? Um, do we need to decrease it or increase it? So, Yeah. So for my patients on basal insulin, they should be checking their fasting sugar in the morning every single day. Um, that's, that uh, is an ongoing uh, thing they should do. Um, I usually tell them for the two to three days before they come to my visit, I want them to be checking, uh, of course, the fasting sugar every day should be continued, but a before and after a breakfast on on one day, uh, maybe a Monday, on a Tuesday, a before and after lunch, on a Wednesday, a before and after dinner, uh, and then maybe a bedtime. So they don't need to do it every day, but I just kind of want to get a sense of how those numbers are doing in general in relation to their uh, lifestyle. Um, and so again, we're really focused on that morning sugar to begin with. And again, 80 to 130 is the target. If the person's uh, above that target for two to three days, they should go up by two units. And you can write that out to self-direct the patient every three days. If that morning number is above your target of 130, you're going to go up by two units. Again, after three days, if you're still above 130, you're going to go up by two units and keep going up. The ceiling uh, at which they need to stop is going to be when once they get to 0.5 units per kilogram. Uh, for 
I try to simplify that for patients and for my learners. I just say once they get to 50, five, zero units per day of a basal, then we need to, to regroup and start talking about do we need mealtime insulin? So I just try to make it easy there. Um, but that's how you would proceed with that treatment. And this or this this term overbasalization has appeared in the uh, the ADA standards of care this year, and it's a term that I I, I believe you've taught me in the past, and uh, Tom Sauerwein uh, had you know way back in the day uh, teaching me about insulin. But uh, can you talk a little bit about overbasalization and how we might recognize that? We we I I was surprised to see it in the guidelines. Like I didn't know how important it was, but it seems like it's getting a lot more press now. Yeah, so when you look at blood sugars, you're you're actually doing something that we call pattern management. So you're trying to look at the sugars. And I often use a highlighter, or if you the computer can do it for you, a lot of people's programs do this automatically. They highlight the lows in a certain color and the highs in a certain color, and then the good numbers. Uh, generally, 90 up to 180 are reasonable range numbers and will be black. So above 180 will be you know, maybe red and then below 90 uh, could be blue saying like, hey, that's low. Um, it helps your eyes see what's going on. And the first thing that you want to look at is lows. That's the first thing in pattern management you need to look for is lows. If the person's having lows overnight or you see lows occurring frequently during the day or at any time, we need to address that first because if they're having, let's say, for example, they're having lows every night at 1 a.m. and they're eating a bunch of carbs to fix it, and then their fasting number at 8 a.m. is always high, you're like, oh, we got to go up on their basal insulin. Wait a second. Were they eating a whole bunch of carb to fix a bad low that was occurring earlier in the evening? So lows are always fixed first before we start piling on any kind of therapy. Once you address the why of the lows and what happened, maybe they forgot to eat a meal, they skipped a meal, or they were moving boxes for hours doing a house move or something. It, you you want to investigate the why as much as they can remember and try to address what happened. And if you really don't know, the right answer is to try to start reducing insulin because lows are harmful. I think we talk about highs being bad and hurting the body. Lows are very harmful to patients as well. That's number one in the pattern management. Number two is hyperglycemia. You want to see where those highs are. And if the fasting sugar is high in the morning, you can go up on the basal. If the fasting sugar in the morning is looking great, 80 to 130, but those numbers during the day before and after those meals are starting to be high, then you need to start doing mealtime insulin. Or if we have the insurance or money, adding an SGLT2 inhibitor or a GLP-1 agonist to cover the daytime mealtime. So just to go back and bring that back. Those can be yeah. added to basal insulin. They all they work well together. Mm-hmm. So with the over-basalization, you said the way to, one way to recognize that is if people are having, uh, if they're on more than half a unit per kilogram per day, which, you know, to simplify, say 50 units or more, because uh, as we talked about, everyone's 100 kilograms nowadays. So uh, 50 units or more, or if they're having frequent lows, um, that that would be another way to, to recognize it. And thinking about, do I need to back off on the basal and do I need to add a, a meal time? Okay. You said it right. Yep. All right. So I think we're in a good spot to give you the next part of this case here. Uh, let's just say that with Chuck, we we gave him the option. He could either go down on the glimepiride or try to stop it. He wants to try to get off any medicine he can, especially if he's starting insulin. So he just decided to just stop it. And we're, we're going to closely follow the what's happening before and after meals. So he's on 20 of Glargine. 
Um, he goes up by two units every couple days, like we told him to, every three days. And uh, he's working with a fantastic clinical pharmacist uh, in our clinic, and he gets all the way up to Glargine 50 units nightly over the next three months. So we would say at this point, he's adequately basaled, I guess. And his morning glucose is 130, give or take. Pre-meal glucose, 150 to 160 or so. Um, he hasn't been checking any postprandial glucose, and his next A1C is 8.2%. Uh, he still has some dietary changes to make, um, hasn't really increased his physical activity yet. Uh, anything else you would do at this point, Jeff? Like, would you, you know, he's he's pretty close to that, like, acceptable range, but not ideal. Um, what might you do with a patient like this um, as a next step? Yeah, like you mentioned, he's getting pretty close, and there's definitely uh, a lot of variety. I feel like um, people feel like there's one right answer with diabetes care, and it depends a lot on patient preference and what they're able to do and want to do and just mixtures of meds and your formulary. So there's a lot of right answers here. I think you could give him some trial of working on his lifestyle if he has an ability to change some dietary habits. Um, that 8.2 could get brought down into goal without adding more insulin mm -hmm. because there is going to be a burden of adding mealtime insulin with complexity um, and potential for lows and things that might uh, bother the patient. Um, if if you can do, again, at GLP-1 agonist or SGLT-2 inhibitor, those are always a fair game to add. Um, and, you know, if the person worsens, if these sugars become a little bit more um, difficult for them and the numbers drift up, I probably would start some mealtime insulin um, generally, when you do that, you don't start three times a day. You look for what the biggest meal of the day is for the patient, and you just add a couple of units. So usually about four units, uh, give or take, uh, per the guidelines. Um, and then you actually are going to need to shave a little off the basil as you add to the meal time. So you could add uh, four to six units to a meal uh, taking away about four units from the basal and monitoring a bit uh, the biggest meal to see if that has an impact. But for right now, uh, maybe try and work on some lifestyle. Mm. And if he were to get the so he gets Cadillac insurance or some sort of change where he can he can get the GLP one because this is a patient whose BMI as a reminder is forty six, and it, it sounds like he's relatively close. Is this if you opted to start the GLP one agonist? What what might that look like for this patient? Sort of would you? back off his insulin a little bit or with his A1C being where it is, he would just leave all things right. Like how would you approach that in this particular patient? Yeah, there's one once a day GLP-1 agonist, but all the others are a once a week injection. Uh, they take about four weeks to reach their steady state. So they actually take a while to get up to speed. Um, and so you're not going to see strong impact of those injectables um, until a couple of weeks. So, But you do need to make a drop of the basal. Um, they will become hypoglycemic if you don't give room. Generally, I will drop the dose uh, by about 20%. So like, let's say the patient's on 20 units, Sorry, we said they were on 50 units, 5-0. Um, and so that would be uh, 10. Uh, so they would go from 50 down to 40 units of their basal, um, start their GLP-1 agonist. And then uh, I would want to see them back sooner than later. Uh, the guidelines recommend three months. Uh, but if you can do it sooner than that, that would be very good. Or if you have a clinical pharmacist or other helpers that can check in and titrate things, that would be great. Mm -hmm. You mentioned an SGLT2 would be another potential thing you could start. You know, we didn't really... I, I don't think we pushed you too much one way or another uh, with like giving him like kidney disease. But if he were to start an SGLT2, I know those are less potent. Do you have to make room for them as well? Or do you like, do you drop it as, as much like 20% or is it, or do you just start it on in addition to the insulin? The nice thing with those medications is that they, uh, they, 
do most of their work when the sugar is above 180. So when you have a significant hyperglycemia, they really are more functional. And then as the sugar is more normal glycemic, they actually have less function. So they're they're nice in that way uh, that they're less risky for lows. Mm-hmm. Um, I would probably still make a little room. I might, uh, again, this is uh, the art of medicine. I would maybe drop their basal by 10%. Mm-hmm. Um, part of what you're trying to do also is that insulin's great. Insulin has what I would say is infinite potential. As long as the person needs more, you can go up on the dose, have more function and get the sugars improved. A problem of insulin is that it doesn't match biology perfectly uh, because it's subcutaneous. Uh, we, you and I make it in our intra-arterial. We turn it on and off instantly. When it's subcutaneous, it lags. And the lag of insulin always leads to basically a state of over-insulin, a slight physiologic over-insulin state. And that state causes a slight gain of weight constantly. And so patients, although they're appropriately treated, they're not hypoglycemic, they will generally have some weight gain on insulin. It just kind of comes with it. Um, Our goal with these other medicines is to get weight loss to occur. And if you don't start shaving the insulin as you add on these other therapies, you're not going to give the room for hyperglycemia for the the S2 inhibitor to kick in to then have its effect and also have weight loss. So I hope that makes sense. You're trying to, you know, of course we don't want hyperglycemia, but you're trying to let it be at a point where the S2 has a function mm-hmm. and over time remove some of the basal across time, allowing the patient to get to lower weight and lower insulin use. Oh, that's great. That's a great point. Yeah. Maybe this is a good time to mention the fact that uh, some of the, and Paul, you, I think you gave him a Cadillac insurance, right? I did. In that yes. scenario. Cause there, there are two, I believe, pre-mix, uh, fixed dose combinations of a basal insulin and an, and a GLP one agonist. Can you talk a little bit about those? I mean, I, I guess at some point they'll be generic and we might be able to use them, but. Yeah, there's, uh, some good, uh, like you'd mentioned, uh, GLP one and, and aglargine, uh, products that are available, uh, that are mixed in a pen. And basically there's a chart that the patient follows and you start them at the starting point of the chart and they dial it up until their fasting sugars are at goal. It's, cookie cutter. Uh, They follow the little package insert on the chart. They need very little hands-on from the doctor's office. You just uh, allow them to bring it up until their numbers, their fasting numbers are looking great. It's a great product because you're getting the benefit of both medicines. They're getting good insulin action uh, to fix the sugars right now. And also the GLP-1 to prevent the weight gain of the insulin. I I think they're wonderful. Could you do the same by prescribing them separately? I think you can, Uh, although you've got the complexity of doing basal insulin and also GLP-1 injections and educating on how both of them work and the timing of both. So it just depends if you've got insurance to cover one of the combos. I think they're fantastic. If you don't uh, try to prescribe a GLP-1 and a basal insulin, if you need them. Um, but yeah, I think they're great products. Um, and, uh, you also, one thing I would say is that I think sometimes we forget that the GLP ones at higher dosing, you can have the side effect of, uh, nausea and GI upset and that, uh, we forget to counsel for that. We're just so excited that the dose is going up and the sugars are looking great, but forget that the higher GLP one dose uh, might cause side effects that limit that therapy from going higher. Yeah, I've had a couple patients now on them for weight weight loss uh, that, or well, 
probably a combination, weight loss and diabetes, but that have had really bad constipation uh, on, yeah. on those medications uh, to the point where they, they thought they were going to have to go to the ER or, or some patients just not eating at all. So it's they're, they're like very potent as far as what they're doing to the GI tract, I will say, yep. in my experience, even yep. at the lowish doses. Yeah, that that's that can be hard for some patients. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think Chuck. Let's say that we actually just kept him on the basal insulin, the metformin. He he really changed up his lifestyle and didn't end up needing uh, another agent, at least not just yet. Paul, we fixed our first case, but uh, let's not let Jeff off the hook that easy. Let's give him another case from Cashlack. So we have uh, Mrs. Dee Dee. She's a seventy-three-year-old female with. Insulin requiring type 2 diabetes. She has high blood pressure, history of CVA, chronic kidney disease, stage 4 with her last EGFR at 22. She's presenting to you for follow-up um, after a visit to the ER where she was actually treated for a second fall uh, that was maybe related to hypoglycemia. Her fasting blood sugar at home was 68 milligrams per deciliter when the paramedics arrived. The patient's daughter mentions that because Mrs. Didi wakes up late in the morning, she usually eats only once per day, and maybe she has a snack before bedtime sometimes. She has been using 30 units of Detamir every night for about a year, and then 5 to 10 units of Lispro with meals, depending on how high her sugars have been before she's uh, before she eats. In the office, her vitals are 142 over 61. Her BMI is 24.6. And again, we have a point-of-care A1C machine. I'm assuming it's a machine. I've never actually seen one in real life. Um, <laughs> that gives us a point-of-care A1C of 6.3%. Uh, I guess that was on the ER. So a lot going on with... Mrs. Didi uh, obviously has great glycemic control, so that's that's not the concern. But what, <laughs> what, how should we back off? How do we back off? What what do you what kind of things are you thinking about when you see this patient um, in follow up? Yeah, so uh, we always begin with thinking: is the person type one or type two? Um, you'd mentioned she's a type two. Um, the reality is that she's pretty progressed, it looks like. So she's already on a basal insulin plus mealtime insulin uh, with each meal, and she has progressed kidney failure. So it's very likely that her uh, beta cell function is nil. Uh, she probably functions like a type 1. You'd mentioned insulin-dependent diabetes. It's a older term, but it relates the idea that she requires insulin as the therapy. Um, other therapies are going to be contraindicated by the low GFR or just won't be functional because she's not making insulin and needs injections of insulin. Um, and so um, the case here, D- Mrs. Dee Dee is having, a, appears to be hypoglycemia, which um, as patients age, um, they eat less uh, often. Um, and so their insulin needs might drop. Uh, oftentimes, uh, they may lose body weight as we get older uh, due to sarcopenia, which is muscle loss or other things, and their insulin dose drops. Uh, and then also, insulin is primarily cleared by the kidneys. And so as kidney failure progresses, the insulin that is injected lingers. It hangs around longer, and so the effective dose is uh, exaggerated. Uh, causing a risk of hypoglycemia to be more. And so all those things might be affecting our patient. You want to try to figure out, um, there's a lot, you know, is she having problems chewing? Is she a dentulous? Are her dentures fitting? Is she eating calories well? Is she, you know, is she lost her appetite? Does she have depression? Uh, which can happen uh, with diabetes frequently, uh, and uh, and CKD can reduce appetite. So there's a lot to look at for calorie intake and just um, what I like to call constitutional health, like just how is the person's function? What's their overall wellness? What's the home environment? It's kind of like that geriatric assessment. 
Uh, once we've looked at those factors, which are very important, uh, really overall, since she's having the lows and having emergency lows, we really need to de-intensify. We need to drop some insulin. Uh, certainly, the basal insulin, that detamir, can get dropped. Um, you know, I usually like to do 10 or 20% changes with regimens just to kind of keep it relative to what's going on. Uh, she's older. She's having bad lows. I'd probably do a 20% drop. So from 30, 20% of that would be 6. So drop it to 24. Uh, that'd be reasonable. Uh, and then the mealtime, um, you know, you'd really have to look at the sugars, the patterns a little bit. You know, 5 to 10 of fast acting is what she'd mentioned. Um, that might be reasonable. Uh, usually uh, that pairs up pretty good, those doses. So if you take all of the mealtime insulin added together, it should be about half of the regimen compared to the basal. So for example, if she did at the top of her regimen, 10 units, 10 units, and 10 units, breakfast, lunch, dinner, with the fast acting, that's total going to be 30. And we'd mentioned that her detamir is 30. So her regimen on the face of it is reasonable. It's 50% mealtime, 50% basal. So that's mm -hmm. a good balance. Uh, but again, overall, we need to be dropping things because of the lows. So uh, detamir goes to 24. And then maybe instead of 5 to 10 on meals, maybe we do like, four to eight. And then mm -hmm. we have her check her sugars and see how she's doing. I, I have come into this before where patients, um, the family's like excited. They're like, oh, their, their sugars, their, you know, their A1C is great. And, and I'm like, I'm worried that we're missing some like major lows here. Uh, I mean, in this case, we, we've, we've sort of caught it, uh, because the patient had an event, but sometimes you get the patient hasn't had anything bad happen yet. And they're like, their A1C is really low. Um, I was reading the the standards of care, the ADA standards of care that we keep referencing. They actually have like a a section, I think it's chapter 13 on caring for older adults. And one of the suggestions they have for simplifying regimens is like, if the person is taking it at night, just move it to the morning. I guess a lot of people fall asleep and forget to take it. Uh, I'm not sure. If, is that something you find helpful <laughs> that you would recommend to the audience? Yeah, it could. I, I actually like that a lot. It depend, we've learned basal insulins at night, basal insulins at night, you know, take larging at night. And that, that doesn't come from anywhere. Uh, that's been a standard that just got set for some reason. But I, I like to begin larging in the morning. Uh, for me, that would be the way to go. You know, wake up, you brush your teeth, get the day started, have coffee and take uh, basal insulin. But I, I, you have to know your patient. Um, some people, they've been doing it this way for, you know, forever that's their thing, if it's working, you know, so you just have to know your patient. Um, sure. I think that's good for you to think about understanding it doesn't have to be stuck to nighttime. But mm -hmm. what about a GLP-1 for this patient? So we have her on this, I, I don't see that on her list. I mean, she's, she does, she has advanced CKD, but not so much that would be, well, but not so much that would even be a concern with that. Like, would you ever consider sort of making a swap? And I, I think part of the point of this case is patients become very married to their regimens and are, are sort of hesitant to make changes. But if there's someone who is all in and you have her confidence, would you ever consider making that change to maybe something less hypoglycemia prone that would still have some benefit? Yeah. So it's going to be an off-label for some of the GLP-1s based on her GFR being, uh, I think it was 22. So you're getting down into the lower. I do think you could try a lower dose, um, something small to see if you could get some mealtime coverage. Uh, I don't know if you can totally get away from mealtime insulin only because if she's a, a, a long standing has long-standing diabetes and is kind of 
beta cell failed out, you might not get a lot of bang for that. But I don't think it's off the table. You just have to realize uh, GLP-1 agonists can stick around longer. If she's an older patient losing weight, that's going to worsen that process. You know, if she's got CKD, you know, does she have gastroparesis as a complication of her diabetes too? So it gets it gets tricky. I think you'd really have to investigate and be careful with that. I, I would be really cautious to try to go that route. It's tempting because you're like, oh my gosh, I really just want to make it easier for this person because right. that's what we're told to do. Um, but it can also lead to some of those problems. So, but I like the intent. And if you get to know the patient, this is complex. It, it might, it might be about, it might be possible. The other thing that, uh, and we talked about this already, the, the kind of the older impetus, I guess, earlier in my medical career, I would see, it seemed like everyone was either on no insulin or basal bolus insulin. And now it's like, you know, for type two, we sort of push the basal only with some other, other agents to kind of supplement that. And then now there's this concept, um, a, of basal plus one or basal plus two, which you've talked to us about on the show before. Uh, so I, I just find, I would say to the audience, ask your patients how many meals a day they eat too, because a lot of the older patients, they might eat like a meal and a snack. And that in those cases, they probably wouldn't need three injections of their, of the Lispro in this case. Yeah, you're right. You might get away with not doing a bolus for something smaller in the day because we're not seeking perfection. Uh, once you have things like advanced CKD, uh, the horse is out of the stable. You're not going to improve them. You actually will harm them. Uh, the A1C target for this patient, which there's this amazing podcast out there called The Curbsiders, uh, has a great <laughs> episode on A1C targeting. Uh, no, but uh, it should be eight to nine for this patient. Um, and so we're not seeking perfection. And um, you can you can decide not to cover certain things. I think that a lot of clinicians, we're trying to do it right. We want to fix it, make it normal. You know, that's the thing we are thinking about. But in this patient, helping the patient is not, quote unquote, normalizing the numbers. It's seeking safe, rational targets, simplification. If you can take away a dosing in the day that's a smaller intake of food, try it. You know, they might not become very hyperglycemic. You can, you can tolerate a number of 200, 220. That's not going to harm our patient. That's okay. And I think, I think retraining the eyes of the patient and many times the family to say, hey, 150 to 220, we're doing fine. 150 to 230, we're probably still do, we're doing fine. Let's try to make it safer for them Yeah, and easier. We're probably running down to the last question or two here. Um, Paul, did you, did you have any other comments on this? I mean, I, I think we should maybe talk a little bit about what to do with hypoglycemia just because it's so... That was it. Yep. It took that the comment out of my mouth. Just the, the counseling around hypoglycemic, how to recognize it, what to do when you actually experience it, when to watch for it. I think those would all be sort of helpful uh, scripts to hear how you talk about patients. Yeah, this is a perfect cap to the insulin show because when you start insulin, you must pair it with talking about detecting hypoglycemia and how to treat it. Patients should know the symptoms of hypoglycemia. So there's usually um, hunger, nervousness, uh, feelings of anxiousness. That's all of the um, autonomic uh, nervous system kind of kicking. You don't need to use those words with the patient. You just need to tell them you're going to feel hungry and anxious and sweaty. And if you're feeling those symptoms, you need to check your blood sugar immediately. So you should, as a good habit, carry your glucose meter with you uh, 
fanny pack or, you know, that's kind of in vogue. My, my <laughs> yeah, trainees tell me a fanny P is the way to go. Uh, you know, <laughs> Your trainees are cool. missing with you, Jeff. I'm sorry I to don't tell know, you. Maybe I'm a super geek. So they can probably, I'm, I'm probably walking around with my fanny pack. Like, oh, they're, like, you know, they're like Dr. Coburn. All the, all the rock climbers wear fanny packs nowadays. It went over me, but you know, you got to get people to carry, um, probably testing equipment if, if it is low. So uh, less than 70 for someone with diabetes is considered low. Um, if they're approaching that, I would consider that's going to be low. Um, they're going to treat with 15. So that's one, five grams of carbohydrate, usually best to be uh, glucose tablets. Uh, so if you buy those at a supermarket or a pharmacy, they're over the counter. Uh, they're usually, you have to eat three or four of those to get 15 grams. Uh, it's good because they're, they're rapid. It's glucose only. A lot of candies have sucrose and it's, it takes a bit for that to get broken into glucose, Glucose actually doesn't taste that sweet, um, but glucose tablets are uh, more readily, quickly available. They also make glucose gel. Uh, I like that as an option to have on the patient because if they're becoming kind of unconscious and someone around them knows how to do it, if you just squirt it in their cheek, they don't even have to swallow it. It'll absorb uh, on what we call the buccal mucosa right on the cheek, inside of the inside of the cheek mm -hmm. there uh, or under the tongue. Um, so once you dose that, uh, you wait 15 minutes. So we call it the rule of 15. You uh, take 15 grams of carb. You wait 15 minutes. You recheck the sugar. And hopefully it's uh, better than 70. It's out of the low range. If it isn't, then you retreat. If, and then you wait 15 minutes and check again. And if not, you retreat. If you're doing this several times, you should be calling for emergency service and medical services um, if that's occurred. The other thing that pe people that are getting insulin, you might consider giving them is glucagon. Um, and so if a person has had bad lows or frequent lows or something like unconsciousness or a seizure or something severe uh, where they don't have the ability to treat with eating something, glucagon can be delivered by a, uh, it, it, you have to constitute it. So it's not like an EpiPen and in instant go. It takes a bit to kind of get it ready, but you have to train the family members to inject them uh, IM with that. Or now there's intranasal powder uh, that you can uh, puff right up into the nose. They make a couple of those. There's a couple of manufacturers that make intranasal glucagon, which are ready to go. So those are options you can prescribe to patients and patient families to have available. Glucagon works by having your liver dump out all of its glycogen reserve. Um, and so once you've used that, within about five minutes, your blood sugar will, whoa, get right up, uh, be good. Here's the problem, though. If you become low again after doing that within the same day, glucagon will not have an effect because you've already used up all of your glycogen. So if you've used your glucagon treatment, um, you have to get back on your normal schedule of eating and using insulin so that you can build back normal uh, reserves of glycogen on your liver, the normal stores on the liver. So yeah, you can only use glucagon once in a day. You can't uh, do it again. But that's how you treat. That's called the rule of 15. Uh, and for people at more risk, you can prescribe glucagon. And that's not something that like an endocrinologist, I think, specifically needs to be doing. I think primary care should be prescribing that. Yeah. It's a safe medicine. The main side effect is nausea. I, the other counseling that should be given is once they get uh, glucagon, the person might throw up. So if they're unconscious when you're giving it to them, put them in what we call the recovery position, uh, which is on their side, kind of head facing down or tilted downward, you know, not face on the floor, but head facing downward. So if they do vomit, they don't aspirate it. So, yeah. Ah, just such great, such great uh, advice, Jeff, as always. Um, th this has been fantastic. Paul, uh, did we, did we do it? Are we, 
I feel like I can now start insulin on a patient. I'm pretty excited. So thank you, Dr. Coburn. <laughs> Good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. So, uh, Jeff, let's let's get maybe one or two take home points on insulin therapy. And again, we're talking we talk type two diabetes, insulin therapy for type two diabetes today. Uh, what, what else? What do you want the audience to remember if they don't you know, if it's just one or two things? So remember, insulin is needed for patients when their beta cells fail. Um, 50% of them have failed at the time you diagnose them with type 2. They progressively lose function across the time with the patient. All of the other medicines can help potentially stall that or provide weight loss. So we do like those other metformin, SGLT2 inhibitor, GLP-1. So if you can access those, the guidelines say do those first. Um, however, insulin is not a, um, you know, a failure of the person and it's not an evil medicine. It has basically unlimited potential. We start with basal. We start at um, 0.1 to 0.2 units per kilogram per day, seeking a sugar of 90 to 130 fasting in the morning and giving them two extra units uh, every three days if they're not within that target. Um, we always want to pair starting insulin with hypoglycemia teaching with the rule of 15 and you should not be afraid of insulin. It is a, um, it is, I will just say this, I don't want to make you cavalier. It is hard to make a person hypoglycemic with starting just basal insulin because they have a 24-hour period the insulin's acting. They, they would have a long period of time where the lowering of blood sugar leading to unsafe blood sugars is going to cause symptoms and the person is going to be seeking and eating and doing other things. Um, it's pretty hard to get really dangerously bad with basal insulin. Do not be afraid of it. It's useful, powerful, good medicine. And um, yeah, I hope our, our provider team out there, everyone uh, has an opportunity to help someone with this. Any, anything, any resources that you'd like to plug before we let you get back to the family? I think the ADA um, standards of care app for um, the various smartphones is fantastic and really easy to follow, particularly for insulin. So if you take away anything from today, if you just download that app, um, it, it's very algorithmic um, and point of care great. Uh, a, the American Association of Clinical Endocrinology, uh, ACE, AACE also has a similar app, which has, works well. Um, I just promote the ADA because they're the Diabetes Association. And, um, but uh, I would point people to use those. Yeah. It looked like when I was kicking around their website, it looks like they're updating their diabetes stuff sometime this year, maybe, yep. or yep. says it's pending. So, yep. all right, Jeff, always great to have an excuse to hang out with you. Uh, tell, tell your wife that I said, hello. Uh, yep. She makes this she... happen. Otherwise I can't get corralled. <laughs> Thank <laughs> As you, Juan. Knows. Yeah. Uh, the, I'm constant trouble, but yeah. Um, Paul, I'm telling you, man, your job is, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be right up there, dude. I'm, I'm seeking you. You better be watching. I, <laughs> it's yours for the taking, Jeff. You know, Paul, we should we should go down and visit Jeff once he gets into his new digs down there. We should, we should go down and visit again. I, I think we can make that happen, sound. Jeff. We, we know the same people, so we, we should... Uh, we should come down and do something there. Uh, and as I've been watching, you have a very nice cat. I'm going to, you know, if you don't lock that place up, <laughs> I, I'm going to steal your cat, dude. I'm just going to take on cats. over here. He has <laughs> two cats. Oh, yeah. just, how right him. crime is now. This is all, this is all recorded. <laughs> <laughs> this has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. <laughs> a little pause for that one. Still hungry for more? Join our Patreon and get all episodes ad-free, plus twice-monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash curbsiders. 
You can find show notes at thecurbsiders.com. And while you're there, it's time for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox, including our Curbsiders Digest, which recaps the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. And we're committed to high-value, practice-changing knowledge, and we want your feedback. You can subscribe, rate, and review the show on YouTube, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. You can also send an email to askcurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that this and most episodes are available through VCU Health at Curbs for CME at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. A special thanks to our writer and producer for this episode, Isabel Valdez, and to our whole Curbsiders team who does all this work behind the scenes. Our technical production is done by the team at Podpace. Elizabeth Frodo runs our social media. Chris the Chew Man Chew is the moderator on our Discord. Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. And with all that, Paul, until next time, I am a tired Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye.